Hi everyone, uh, Taylor here. So this week on Square Mile of Murder, we're doing things a little bit differently than usual. Kat had a rough go over the last week and ended up in the hospital for a little bit. She's back home now, uh, but she's busy resting up. So instead of, you know, going through the process, which is quite exhausting, believe it or not, of, of researching and writing and recording a new episode this week, we are instead going to re-release one of our Patreon bonus episodes to everyone so that she can keep recuperating. This episode was released in January of this year for our 10 pound and up patrons, which at this point, those patrons are just our moms. And so they said it would be okay to let everyone else hear the episode too. So if you do hear any references to Patreon or to it being a bonus episode in the recording, that's why. Um, and actually, this is one of our favorite recent bonus episodes. It's a really crazy story, and we're really excited that everyone gets to hear it now. So please enjoy the episode, and do take the time to head to our website to look at some of the crazy images from this case. Uh, the link to that will be in the show notes as usual, or you can just go to squaremileofmurder.com and uh, you'll find the latest episode on the homepage. Uh, and do let us know what you think on social media because uh, this case is just wild and it's really, it's a fun one to talk about. We will keep you updated with our plans going forward. And of course, I hope you will all join me in wishing Kat a speedy and easy recovery. So with all that said, on with the show. In November 2011, the world-renowned Nodler Art Gallery announced it would be permanently closing after 165 years in business. The New York City institution made no real mention of why they were shutting the doors, only referencing vague, quote, business reasons. But behind the scenes, things were stormy, scandalous, and criminal. I'm Taylor. I'm Kat, and today we're talking about the scandal that rocked the commercial art world and brought the Nodler Gallery to its knees. First, a little background. M. Nodler & Co. started life in 1846 as the US branch of the French art dealers Goupil and C? Yeah, I have no idea. We think? Yeah. Goupil and C? We think. In New York City. German-born Michael Nodler began working at Goupil and C. I'm just going to call it G and C. Yeah, that's probably better. <laughs> in Paris in 1844 and moved to New York in 1852 to run the New York branch. He purchased the shop in 1857 and changed the name to M. Nodler & Co. This was so early on in the days of art collecting that the shop wasn't even known as an art gallery and instead sold frames, art supplies, prints and engravings. And those last two are what Nodler was particularly interested in. He had a particular interest in American art and sold engravings of now famous paintings. One was a full-sized engraving of the famous Washington Crossing the Delaware by Emmanuel Luzzi. 
uh, which Nodler sold at £20 per copy, and today that would be $599. By 1859, the shop moved uptown from its uh, original Broadway and Duane Street location to Broadway and 10th Street, uh, right across from the historic Grace Church, and actually like two blocks away from where I first lived in New York, so... That's pretty cool. Well, you're special. Actually, I think that the location, that this location, Broadway and 10th Street, it may well now be uh, an NYU dorm. Because oh. I was looking at it on the map, and there's a freshman dorm right across from the church. And I'm like, I think that could be <laughs> where it was. Um, yeah. So the gallery became popular with the incredibly wealthy members of American society who had new money burning a hole in their 19th century pockets. Uh, huge names like J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and John Jacob Astor became obsessed with buying paintings from Nodler, especially works by the old masters. And at this time, Nodler wasn't just at the heart of the New York art scene. It was the entire New York art scene. In fact, the Metropolitan Museum of Art didn't open until 1872, and when the museum did open, it acquired paintings from Nodler, as did the Louvre and the Tate Gallery. The gallery continued to top the commercial art world for generations and became known for champion, championing... I can't say that word. Championing? Championing. Became known for promoting contemporary art. Uh, they sold works by Impressionists Degas, Manet, John Singer Sargent, and William Merritt Chase. Uh, by the early 1970s, the gallery began to struggle and was sold to industrialist and collector Armand Hammer for just uh, $2.5 million. Uh, after this sale, the gallery mostly focused on contemporary art of the time. Uh, artists like Frank Stella and Richard Diebenkorn became closely involved with the gallery after being brought in by director Lawrence Rubin during the late 1970s. And it was during Rubin's reign that a young and ambitious assistant began working at the gallery. Her name was Anne Friedman. Friedman held a BFA in painting from Washington University in St. Louis and started working at Nodler in 1977. She quickly became known as the gallery's best salesperson. In a Vanity Fair article about Nodler's downfall, one former colleague said, Once the client was in her office or showroom, there was no getting out without buying a painting. Friedman worked her way up to director of Nodler by 1994, and it was at some point after Friedman became director that... Grafera Rosales walked into Nodler. Her arrival would change Nodler's path forever. Grafera Rosales had been introduced to Friedman by a mutual friend, and Rosales had some art that she wanted to show Friedman. She came into the gallery with work by abstract expressionist Mark Rothko on paper, and after consulting some experts, Friedman was convinced that the painting was authentic. But even she had to admit that the story behind the painting's origin was a bit strange. Rosales said the painting was part of a collection by a man named Mr. X Jr. Mr. X uh, wished to remain anonymous, but according to Rosales, 
that man's Filipino parents had known Alfonso Osorio, an abstract expressionist painter who was at the centre of the art scene. Osario apparently brought Mr. X Jr.'s parents into artist studios where they purchased paintings directly from the artists. These paintings stayed in storage until Mr. X Jr. inherited them and decided to sell them. Yeah. So, one by one, a few times a year, that's what Friedman did. Rosales would bring in a painting and hand it over to Nodler to sell. The two women agreed on a flat rate price for each painting, and once that was met, Nodler could keep any profit above that amount. And this arrangement proved to be incredibly lucrative for the gallery. Uh, despite constantly asking to meet Mr. X Jr., Friedman never got to meet her new favorite collector. Rosales always said, not now. Uh, Friedman would take every new painting that she got from Rosales and put it on display for other art dealers to see at the annual Art Dealers Association of America show at the Park Avenue Armory. She told Vanity Fair that using these moments at the ADAA shows helped convince her that the paintings were legitimate. Friedman insisted that her learned colleagues would have told her if something was wrong with the paintings. Now... <laughs> For their part, her colleagues told Vanity Fair that they certainly would not have said anything. <laughs> One art dealer said that the paintings from Mr. X Jr.'s collection always seemed not quite right, often too perfect or too symmetrical. Uh, he said, the pros don't say anything. They just turn their backs. Um, and often they would look up the paintings in each artist's catalog raisonné, which is uh, an official list of an artist's known and authenticated works, and they wouldn't find any trace of these paintings. But Friedman simply took their silence as acceptance. By 2001, Friedman and Rosales had quite the working relationship. Rosales brought in a Jackson Pollock called Untitled 1949. Uh, Friedman found an interested buyer in Jack Levy, Goldman Sachs co-chair of mergers and acquisitions. Levy was interested in the Pollock but was worried when Friedman told him it wasn't listed in the artist's catalogue raisonné and that the provenance was fuzzy. So Levy struck a deal with Friedman. He would pay two million dollars for the painting but it needed to be authenticated and examined by the international foundation for art research or ifar after examining the painting ifar specialists response was the first in a major blow to nodler they could not confirm the painting was done by pollock they said despite extensive research we could not substantiate any of the limited provenance provided. As such, Levy returned the painting to Nodler and got a refund for the whole $2 million. Yeah. Uh, and after this incident, Rosales started to change her story. See, IFAR had issues with, with Rosales' claims that Mr. X Sr. would have gotten these paintings through Alfonso Osario. Uh, 
Though Osario had passed away in 1990, his partner Ted Dragon was still alive. And when cool name, right? Ted Dragon. <laughs> Ted Dragon, like gay art world extraordinaire. Yeah. Um. So sounds like kind of sounds like a superhero. Not gonna lie. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, yeah. It's a there's a whole lot of mental images that come to mind. <laughs> um. So when questioned by Ifar, Ted Dragon insisted that he would have known about any backdoor dealings by Osario. So to get around that issue, Rosales, quote, remembered some more information about the painting's acquisitions. Now, it turns out wouldn't you believe that Mr. X Sr. was actually gay and closeted. And Rosales remembered that she had gotten the major player wrong. You see, it wasn't Osario who had introduced Mr. X to these famous artists. It was actually a gallery assistant named David Herbert, who ran in the same gay art world circles as Osario and Dragon. Just a minor, Very convenient. yeah, minor detail to get wrong, right? Yeah. Um, so, the new story goes: Mr. X Senior was married with children and began a gay affair with David Herbert. Herbert then brought Mr. X to artist studios, where he bought a bunch of paintings under the table for cash. But when the relationship ended. Mr. X left the gay art scene behind and returned to his family, uh, which, remember when we said they were from the Philippines? Now they're from Switzerland. Well, all rich people end up in Switzerland somewhere it's along fine. the line. It's fine. Right. So he leaves behind his gay art world life, and he returns to his wife and children in Switzerland with all of his new paintings. Now, supposedly... <laughs> Mr. X Sr. couldn't sell the paintings while Herbert was still alive because Herbert would have gotten angry and outed Mr. X as the original buyer. And this, of course, would both out Mr. X as gay, as well as expose him to legal issues regarding taxes, export duties, undeclared assets, and all of that kind of fun stuff. I was just thinking if you were transporting millions and millions <laughs> of dollars worth of paintings from the US to Switzerland. Yes. You'd be in trouble. Because of that, the paintings stayed hidden uh, and remained hidden even after Mr. X Sr. died. And supposedly, it wasn't until David Herbert died in 1995 that Mr. X Jr. started seeking buyers for the artwork. Art world figures who knew Herbert during the 50s find this story bit incredible in every sense of the word. While Herbert certainly did work at some very influential galleries, those galleries always kept detailed records of their inventory. And many believe that if artists sold their works for cash at their studios, they'd still keep a record that the painting existed to begin with. But these paintings that Rosales was bringing into Nodler had no records at all. And apparently, Friedman was not bothered by the lack of records and the changing stories that Rosales presented. She didn't really know anything at all about Glyphera Rosales. 
So despite Friedman's lack of curiosity, we'll fill you in on the details about Rosales and what brought her to Nodler with a stack of undiscovered masterpieces. Uh, Glafira Rosales and her boyfriend Jose Carlos Bergantinos Diaz. See, I can get three out of four of them names right. It's it's just a, there's a lot in a row. <laughs> Rosales and Diaz each had some experience in the art world, but neither were major players. Rosales worked for many years as an art dealer in Great Neck. Long Island, and Diaz had a commercial space on West 19th Street in Manhattan called King Fine Arts, where he sold art supplies and materials. The shop also occasionally operated as a gallery. Diaz also worked as an art dealer dating back to 1990 when he sold a Basquiat. Basquiat. Knew that. Uh, uh, Diaz Diaz also worked as an art dealer dating back to 1990 when he sold a a Basquiat painting at Christie's Auction House. He also earned a negative reputation when he put a winning bid on a 19th century Spanish painting with Christie's but never picked it up or paid for it. And in response... Christie's auction house sued him because that's what you do in America. Yeah, well, also he pay- he bid like the winning bid for the painting was like eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and he just uh, never paid it. So I could understand it in that case. Yeah, I'd be pretty mad too. <laughs> uh, so still, despite all of this, Anne Friedman wasn't worried. <laughs> I'm worried. And this all happened Mm. 20 years ago. Um, So she said she felt no need to investigate the people bringing her these paintings. Instead, she was more interested in getting the paintings verified. Though, based on her efforts or lack thereof, seems like she wasn't all that interested in that either. So after the debacle with the Pollock and Ifar, you'd think that Friedman would be more cautious. But that didn't really happen. Uh, Rosales had brought in seven paintings supposedly by Richard Diebenkorn and the paintings were supposedly part of Diebenkorn's Ocean Park series uh, which were painted when the artist was living in Santa Monica, California Um, the late artist's son-in-law Richard Grant, who was also the head of uh, the Diebenkorn Foundation, was aware that these suspicious paintings existed and were floating around as early as 1995. And Corn's wife and daughter met with Friedman at Nodler to tell her they there were no records of any of these paintings. But despite all this, Friedman sold them. <laughs> and she even sold one to the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> So why, right? Because she, so her stance through all this is, I believed they were real. They looked real. They seemed so legitimate. And but you've just been told they're not. I know, right? Like, oh my god. Um, so Grant contacted Friedman first about the painting, 
uh, to say like, hey, why did you sell this to a museum? We told you it's not legit. But she wasn't interested in his concerns. So he then contacted the Kemper to tell them that they very well could have a fake hanging on their walls. Uh, and the painting was, quote, quietly retired. And Friedman sent another Ocean Park painting with clear provenance to the museum. And this one was from her own personal collection. I mean, if if you're sort of in that prominent position in the art world, and you have a personal collection, like, I assume hers was pretty incredible. Yes, yeah. And you're having to take pieces from that to replace to make the dodgy good. pieces yeah. that you've sold. I'd start looking a little bit closer at what I was buying. Right? Like, that's that's what I would think, but go figure. Um, and speaking of her personal collection, Friedman and her husband, Robert, bought three paintings from Rosales for their personal collection. Uh, they purchased a painting, these are all supposedly buys, supposedly by Robert Motherwell, one by Jackson Pollock, and one by Mark Rothko. And Friedman paid way, way below market value. Uh, the most striking example of this is the $20,000 that she paid for the supposed Motherwell painting, when at the time... A similar Motherwell painting sold for a million dollars. That is quite below asking yeah. for market value. That's uh, her, and her justification was, "Well, I just I bought it at the right time, and I got you know the dealer's discount." It's like, but there's still a big gap between twenty thousand and one million. <laughs> yeah, you got nine hundred and eighty thousand dollars off yeah that's nuts in 2007 friedman sold a silvery jackson pollock known as untitled 1950 why doesn't he just start calling him the year well instead of untitled year i think what i gathered from my research for this script which i i have no Real understanding of the art world. I took a Renaissance art history class in college and barely passed. So that's all I got. Um, I I gather, I don't think Jackson Pollock really titled his paintings at all. So after his death, people have just described them as untitled the year they were finished, I guess. Oh. Could be wrong about that, okay. but I, that's kind of what I gathered. So Friedman sold the untitled 1950 Jackson Pollock to Pierre Lagrange, who was a London-based hedge fund manager. Lagrange paid $17 million for the painting and bought the painting through New York art dealer Jamie Frankfurt. Frankfurt told Vanity Fair that Friedman insisted the Pollock was being added to the artist's catalogue raisonnaire. Friedman, of course, denied this, but she did give Frankfurt and Lagrange a list of 12 art scholars who she said had viewed the painting who could supposedly vouch for its authenticity. This was a bold move because, I'm sure you're going to be shocked to hear, 
The 12 people on that list had never examined the painting, never mind declared it authentic. They may, they may have seen it in passing whilst visiting Nodler, but they were never asked to examine it. Many had no idea that their name had been on the list until they got a call from the FBI. Which is just what you want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so okay. yes, it's the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation, and uh, we want to know about this art that you supposedly vouched for. Yeah, it's like, oh, I've literally oh. never seen that, and now I'm part of a, a fucking federal investigation. That's just a great way to ruin your morning right there. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to go back to bed, and when I wake up, maybe this isn't happening. Yes. Uh, things just kept falling apart from there. In 2009, the FBI had issued a series of subpoenas to Friedman and others involved in the sales of these paintings from what had become known as the David Herbert Collection. On October 16th, 2009, Friedman was forced out of the gallery. I have one thought, right? Hmm. Why is Rosales just bringing these paintings in as and when? Why not sell them all as like a job lot? It was still like the issue of, oh, these are like a little bit sketchily purchased. And so the the reasoning given was she would sell them bit by bit, the collection bit by bit to overcome the weak provenance of many of the paintings, mm. which I see. pretty yeah. suspicious. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah so Friedman is forced out of the gallery and in 2010 the next year Pierre Lagrange tried to sell his Jackson Pollock uh, at Sotheby's auction house mm. um, so Lagrange this painting that he bought for 17 million dollars wanted to sell it on through Sotheby's because he was going through a divorce and he and his wife were trying to split up their assets. So brought it to Sotheby's thinking, this will help me split up my assets during my divorce. Sotheby's didn't want it. Which is not a good sign. No. So uh, LaGrange and Frankfurt frantically called Friedman asking about the supposed update to Pollock's catalog raisonné. Like, why hadn't this painting been added? You promised us that that's what was happening, and now Sotheby's won't sell my painting. Friedman had no answers for them. And then LaGrange had the painting forensically tested, and the results were pretty amazing. The painting contained a yellow pigment that was invented in 1970, which is really remarkable because Jackson Pollock died in a car crash in 1956. Maybe it was a time traveler. Maybe he, Time Lord, maybe. Bit of Doctor Who in there. Um, mm, maybe that's why this all became a scandal that had to cover up that time travel is really a thing. That could very well be Mr. Mr. X. Like, it's very suspicious. Not not a good look. In 2011, Friedman offered to meet LaGrange for a drink while he was in New York. Uh, and at the meeting, LaGrange demanded his money back. But Friedman, for her part, wanted to negotiate. And she offered to find another buyer for the painting. 
which, rightly, Lagrange balked balked at. Uh, he mm. he told her he wasn't interested in simply offloading a fake painting onto another unsuspecting buyer. Uh, which I do think is quite like in this situation, you could definitely see someone being like, "Okay, fine, do that." Yeah, just get me my money back. But it's a bit more of a righteous or moral ethical way to do it i guess yeah and i suppose if he's like a serious art collector which i'm assuming he must be if he's spending that kind of money 17 million on a painting which is only you know you've got a list of people who verified it it's not in the raisin air yeah you know if if you're spending 17 million without even going through like ifar or anything like that any kind of real serious um authenticity authentication process you must be a pretty serious collector to be just throwing that kind of money around yeah like you must as well you must really want to own a jackson pollock right yeah so maybe if he is like really serious about art you can understand why he's like no yeah no this is fucked um so instead he gave her an ultimatum he wanted her to refund his money or he would sue Nodler and Friedman. And in response, Nodler simply shut its doors forever. Now, of course, that was supposedly not at all related to the lawsuit and the ever-looming scandal and, oh, hey, the FBI investigation. Definitely just closed up shop after 165 years for business reasons. (laughs) It's fine, you guys. Yeah. But Nodler did agree to refund LaGrange's money. But there was a problem. Nodler only owned a half stake in the painting. And the owner of the other half had no interest in returning his half of the likely immense profit he made on the deal. He didn't get all his money back. He sued the gallery and Friedman. Uh, and with Nodler's closing, the details of the scandal began to spill out into the press. That's not what you want. No. And with these revelations, other customers began to realize that their paintings might also be fake. Eleanor and Domenico de Sole visited Nodler in 2004 and purchased a Rothko painting for $8.3 million. They saw the news that Nodler had sold fakes and were immediately concerned about the authenticity of their Rothko. They had the painting forensically tested by analyst James Martin. Uh, Martin's report came back saying that the Rothko was fake. They approached Nodler and asked for their money back and when Nodler refused, the De Soles filed a $25 million lawsuit against the gallery and everyone involved. I love, like, just the amount of money that's involved. In it's these. Like, incredible. <laughs> it's like money we could only ever yeah. imagine. That's the thing. It's just like, oh, yeah. And the the, the Soleil is the story behind them is that, like, they, they were told when they were visiting New York that they should go to Nodler to look at paintings by this other artist, but they didn't know there didn't have any, so... Friedman was like, oh, do you want to see my new Rothko? And so she showed them this 
Mark Rothko, quote unquote, and they were like, oh, we love it. We'll take it. It's just like so, we'll take it for $8.3 million. <laughs> I'd love to just go hang out in New York for a while and just think, oh, I'll just pop into a gallery and buy an $8 million. I, I won't buy painting. an $8 painting. <laughs> When I go to New York, because one of our friends lives in New York and hopefully going to go, well, was going to go see her last year, then this year, (laughs) probably going to be like next year or the year after. I plan on spending like $8 on something really tacky that says I heart New York. Yeah. Well, you got to get like a, an I heart New York t-shirt from one of the guys outside of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That's where I got mine. That's a good spot. (laughs) I was thinking of tote bags because I don't wear t-shirts a lot. I wear vest tops more than anything. Tote bags are good too. So yeah, I yeah, but I'm I'm spending eight dollars. That's my <laughs> I'm going to spend eight dollars and thirty cents on something that says I heart New there York. You go. <laughs> um, just just it's just amazing. Just the amount of money just just blows my mind. Yeah, that's incredible. Like. The Desale lawsuit was just one of many that popped up over the years. Although this lawsuit was the only one to make it to trial in Manhattan's Southern District Court in early 2016. The trial included dramatic testimony from a number of experts and emotional testimony from the Desoles themselves. Bet they were emotional. They lost 8.3 million. (laughs) They were mad as hell, apparently. But just as Michael Hammer and Anne Friedman were about to take the stand, the trial was sent to recess. The lawsuit was ultimately settled out of court, and Anne Friedman now owns and runs Friedman Art, another gallery in New York City. I hope she's more careful. You know, I I don't know that she is. She must be getting on a bit by now. Yeah, everyone in this story is like, super old um <laughs> she's like in her 70s i think yes just retire pack it i up. know right like you've go hide somewhere out of the industry yeah like if you need some extra cash sell some of your personal collection and just lay low for a little while lady yeah uh glafaria Rosales admitted in 2013 that all of the works she brought into Nodler were fake. She pled guilty to various charges, including conspiracy, tax evasion, and wire fraud. Because, by the way, when money changed hands for all these fake paintings, Friedman paid Rosales in a combination of wire transfers, checks, and cash transactions, coming in conveniently under $10,000 limit for federal bank reporting. Must be a coincidence, right? Yeah. She reportedly cooperated with federal investigators. Jose Carlos Bergantinos Diaz and his brother Jesus were arrested in Spain in 2014. They had left the US in the hopes of avoiding extradition. Smart to find a country that cooperates. Yeah. Really smart there, guys. Yeah. Montenegro, that's where you go. go. They don't extradite to the US. There you go. According to some TV show I watched. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, Jesus was extradited, but the Spanish courts determined that Jose was not fit for extradition due to health concerns. Yeah, so the last I could find, he's still, like, there's still charges against him, but he's still in Spain, as far as I understand. Yeah. Um, so, basically, everyone got what was coming to them, except for Friedman, but... Don't you know, she's, she's, she had no idea that any of them were fake, obviously. No, she just gave a list of people's names who had authenticated or vouched for these paintings. Yeah, it's, it's totally fine. Uh, Made up stories about raisonnés and yeah, yeah they're totally the actions of an innocent yeah. person. Uh, paid in a combination of transactions that stayed below federal reporting limits. Super um, normal. Can you explain for... Uh, non-US audience, including myself, what federal reporting Basically, means. if you are exchanging amounts of money over $10,000 in cash, um, it has to be like reported separately to the IRS, I believe. So if you... S- so is that like if you say you sell your car yeah. privately yeah. for more than $10,000, you then have to report to the IRS? Yeah. You can't just sell your car yeah. like you would not. Yeah. And like... Got it. The same thing goes for like if you're bringing cash into the country, like, mm-hmm. you know, on, on the plane or whatever, you can bring in thousands of dollars worth of, of US cash, but it has to be under $10,000 before you declare it. So basically, you just have to tell the government, hey, I've got all this money. I'm either receiving as part of a sale or i'm bringing it into the country like they just need to know about it so yeah everyone kind of maybe got their comeuppance uh rosales apparently served some time in prison while waiting sentencing but was released she's older i think she's now in her 70s so she was released uh with probation or something because yeah. she cooperated with investigators as well. Yeah. And, and I see, I mean, we talked about this when we did the um, the canoe man. Yeah. And when we did he went, the major fraud who wants to be a millionaire. Yep. Way back last spring. Yeah. People get really worked up over crimes like this, but the bottom line is it's fraud. Yeah, and that's... And fraud doesn't have a, a long... Sentence. Custodial yeah. penalty. Max is scratching at the door. I'll be back okay. in a minute. Sorry. I can hear him. <laughs> Rosales was older and she got. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So she was released with probation. Um, and as far as I can tell, Diaz is still potentially awaiting extradition, but probably not going to happen. Um, but <laughs> we still have a major missing piece of this story. H- how did Rosales come up with all of these fake masterpieces? Like, did she just have a ring of forgers at her disposal, each one specializing in an abstract expressionist style, you know, churning them out? Well, <laughs> it turns out she had just one. 
all of the Nodler forgeries were painted by the same man. The now 80-year-old Chinese-born retired math professor Pei Shen Qian. And they were all painted in a garage in Queens. That is quite impressive. Isn't it? This is my favorite part of the story. Well, there's one more favorite part, which I'll save for later, but this is up there. So Qian had been a successful artist in his native China, uh, but after moving to the U.S. in 1981, he struggled to find a foothold in the art world. And so from my understanding, he moved into math and ended up being a professor, but he also used to paint outside on street corners in Manhattan, which is exactly where he was discovered in the late 80s by none other than Jose Carlos Bergantinos Diaz. Um, Bergantino saw uh, Chen's talent as a useful tool and commissioned him to copy countless artists' styles and their signatures, which I think is actually what makes these paintings fraudulent. Like, you can copy signature. a painting, but if you copy a signature and purport that it's by someone else, that's fraud. Mm. Yeah. So, Chen would paint with the supplies given to him by Bergantinos, including old canvases bought at flea markets, or sometimes newer canvases that have been stained with tea bags to make them look old, and uh, Bergantinos would bring him old paints to work with. Chen, for his part, has maintained innocence, or rather, ignorance. Um, he told the media that he never knew his copies were being sold as the real thing. He simply thought that he was taking part in a long-standing Chinese art tradition of meticulously copying masterpieces to be sold as copies. He said he thought his paintings were being sold to people who knew they were fake but liked how they looked and wanted to hang them on their hanging them up in their homes. Yeah, so I suppose that's that's like like a cheap print yeah. version of an original. Exactly. Like we have for, you know, pretty much all the old masters. There's cheap versions you can buy somewhere. Hang up in your college dorm room, like Yeah. Exactly. And like apparently and I didn't know this, and I, I don't know the full extent of it, but it's really interesting that, like, a lot of Chinese painters train by copying all of, like, the old masters, you know, in minute and extreme detail. And so there's this whole hmm. world of that in China. So Qian, coming from there, just kind of thought that's what it's they were looking similar. for. Yeah. yeah, there's, you know, there's a similar industry here. Yeah, cool. cool. Can make some money. Yeah. Um, so that's what he said. Uh, for, for his work that fooled Friedman and many high-class art collectors, Chen was paid a couple hundred dollars a piece. Yeah. Mm. But then... He saw one of his works, uh, 
at a high-end Manhattan art show being sold for a considerably higher markup and asked Bergantinos for more money for each piece. So by the end of the scandal's operation, Chen was being paid roughly $7,000 per painting, which does seem like a lot, but to put it into perspective, Chen produced around 60 paintings for Bergantinos and Rosales, which ultimately sold for around $80 million. Yeah. So even for his part, that even at 7,000 a painting, that's still not a lot in comparison. Exactly. And he didn't start making 7,000 per painting until like 2008, which is damn near when people were starting to catch on. So mm. like it was something like he probably only made in total around $15,000 over 20 years for all of these paintings and they're selling for tens yeah. of millions. I mean, if that's supplementing your pension, that's not well, bad going. Yeah, exactly. Um so shortly before the scandal broke, Chen was questioned by the FBI, but he swore he didn't know Rosales and like didn't know what they were talking about basically uh, and then he disappeared uh, in 2014 he showed up again in china and that's likely where he'll stay because china won't be keen on extraditing one of their own citizens to the u.s but yeah so that is the story of the nodler forgery scandal hmm. what do we think I I have many questions. <laughs> you know what they say about fools and money? There's a lot of rich people chucking some just millions away on art. I'd be having that shit authentic. If I was going to drop eight yeah. million on a painting, I'd be like, no, I want it authenticated. I want to know. I want to. I yeah. want everything. Yeah. No, for sure. Like. Um, what I think is really interesting about this case is that it it brings up a question of authenticity in the art world in general, because like yeah. how many other schemes out there like this have existed? Like how yeah. like how many fake paintings are hanging on the walls in art museums around the world? could be none could be a bunch like but it's so hard to know in some of these instances yeah definitely because you say we you'd have to test and examine every every one of the old masters and everything like that that's in all the museums and you can't do that there's so no. many galleries there's so many paintings yeah. and like you know there are works of art that like sort of appear after years and years of like not being known before or like or you think about oh, like yeah. art that was looted in in some of the Nazi raids in during World War II like that you know shows up again and well wasn't there a story a few years ago of a, an apartment in in Paris that had basically been sealed off since since the second world war because i believe it'd been owned by um a jewish family and they'd obviously been rounded up and sent to 
a concentration mm-hmm. camp and no one had actually claimed ownership of this this flat and eventually it was reopened like opened up to see what was in it and there was like thousands and thousands of paintings and sculptures or loads of art and jewelry it's very rich family yeah. and it's just thousands of different like let's like, say pieces of art and sculpture and, and jewelry and furniture and all sorts and it just been sat yeah, there for 50 years exactly or 60 years maybe because those nobody really knew what to do with places like that for a long time yeah so it it's just like there's so, so much unknown yeah, at, for stuff like this yeah so much that just pops up every now yeah. and again that is genuine but like yeah and so a lot of the stuff that i was reading about this case basically says like what this did was it exposed a greater problem within the commercial art industry that like that something like this could happen for 20 years and for 80 million dollars and you know it just kind of by chance it fell apart like it could have kept going so yeah it's just I, i it's amazing and my personal favorite part of this story beyond all of these paintings being done in a queen's garage (laughs) is uh one of the so-called jackson pollocks that ann friedman bought for herself and had hanging in her apartment for years had jackson pollock's signature misspelled So Pollock is spelled P-O-L-L-O-C-K, but Friedman had a Pollock, P-O-L-L-O-K, in her house, just hanging out. But, you know, obviously she didn't know that these were fake paintings. Yeah, and that doesn't really give you any faith in her abilities to check if a signature right. is real like go figure let alone the whole damn painting yeah so i just love that and like apparently other people saw this misspelled signature painting and were like oh it's such a great example of of pollock's work oops <laughs> i mean i mean okay me or you who unless there's something you're not telling me we don't have any very valuable paintings between us, no. do we? You or I could see it and maybe not even register yeah. that the signature is spelled wrong, but someone who is, you know, supposedly at the top of the uh-huh. game should have noticed. She should know. Yeah, she should know. And also, like, um, apparently some of these Pollocks were quite small, which I know that, like, when I think of Jackson Pollock, I think of his paintings that are like massive, like they take up an entire wall, right? Yeah. Uh, But apparently some of these were like, you know, 15 inches by, you know, like you could hang them on or stand them on an easel kind of thing. So that alone Mm -hmm. would be like, oh, how convenient that you found this like nice portable sized (laughs) Jackson Pollock to sell for tons of money. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah, it'd be like, oh yeah, I found this random sketchbook and it's all his like early works when he was still developing his yes, craft. Yeah, so convenient. Convenient. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, we will put uh, photos of some of the fake paintings um, with some real examples, you know, side by side so you guys can see. Um the difference or I guess lack of difference in some of these <laughs> cases. But I had a lot I had a lot of fun just like staring at these paintings being like Yeah. Yeah. Study them closely. There will be a test next yeah. week. See if you can get it Spoiler right. Spoiler alert. <laughs> They're all fake. <laughs> but uh yeah, that's I just we to pick the topic of this episode we did a flip through of one of our um true crime books and landed on a page about art fraud and so when i googled art fraud this was the first <laughs> scandal that came up and and boy am i glad that it did <laughs> there was something in the news just last week that um was it a painting in a gallery had been stolen and replaced with a fake or something and nobody had any idea even though this painting was su supposedly under secure oh, of course like, it was closely guarded i think it was somewhere in italy i feel like that happens more than it really should it's like um the scream oh that gets stolen yeah. so often <laughs> yeah i don't even know what does anyone know where it is yeah. now <laughs> Just around town, it's fine. Uh, yeah, because it was... Was it in a, a gallery? Was it Sweden or Norway? Mm-hmm. Um, and it got stolen and was missing for years and then reappeared and then it was stolen again and then it popped up somewhere <laughs> else and somebody... I'm sure there was one like really famous painting somebody thought was like a replica and didn't realize it was a real thing that had actually been stolen and sold on the black yes, market. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. a a world that I know nothing about, <laughs> and now know that it's full of corruption, just like most other industries. Of yeah. course. Yeah, the more money and the more power involved, the more corrupt things are. Well, we just need Anne Friedman to run everything, because in her world, clearly, nothing bad has happened <laughs> at all. And on that note, thank you so much for listening. Uh, be sure to check out the photos of this post, uh, see some of the fake paintings, go look up the real ones, see what yeah. you think. Uh, let us know in the comments or on social media and we'll be back next week so tune in for next week's episode yeah. oh and um we'll have links to like a bunch of articles about the case and a link to a really really good canadian documentary um which is like it's super fun to watch once you know the whole story because it's got interviews with literally every like friedman and Bergantinos, and they're all like, "Yeah, no, it's I didn't do anything wrong. It's fine." So <laughs> it's it's well worth it. Uh, if you like the show, as always, be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts, and subscribe so you never miss a new episode. 
And if you want to get some cool Square Mile merch, we have a selection of really cool products with awesome designs, and you can find those at the link in our show notes or on our website. If you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show, you can join our Patreon page. Tiers start at just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes a day early, a shout out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime discount on merch. And that's just for £1 a month. As tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and exclusive merch that you can't buy anywhere. Check that out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. Links are in all the usual places. So, yeah, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.